Let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 must be one of the most precious chapters in the Bible, though it's hard to say that since all the Word of God is so precious. But it's a short chapter. It's easy to understand. And it says so many profound things that I hope that we will appreciate this morning. I hope there are verses in here that you recognize as being very special language. And may the Lord bless us to understand this chapter. It's short, it's simple, it shouldn't take us very long. I hope I have your complete attention. Remember, as we have reached this point in 1 Corinthians, we have three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, that deal with spiritual gifts. Chapter 12 explained that those gifts were given by one spirit and that every member at the church at Corinth was only part of the body and therefore they ought to be unified in how they're using their gifts. Chapter 14 is going to be the specific rules and regulations on how to use several of the gifts, particularly tongues, which was such an infatuation for the Corinthians and which is such an infatuation for most charismatics today. In the middle is the love chapter. Now, did Paul get confused in sticking the love chapter between 12 and 14? Or is it there for a very powerful reason that if they had love, which is superior to any gift, and if they had love, they would all be serving one another, not seeking their own. And if they had love, they'd have something that was going to last beyond 10 years since their gifts were all going to go away. And it's all right here in chapter 13. We ended last week with the 31st verse of chapter 12, and I told you it's one of the most glorious transitional verses in the whole Bible. Do you remember when you had to write in school that you had to close out paragraphs with a transitional sentence that would introduce the next paragraph and tie the two together? Well, this sentence is beautiful as he closes out dealing with the church as a body and having various members, he introduces what's going to come. He has just listed all the gifts in the church, or many of them, in verse 28. It runs all the way from the gift of being an apostle down to the gift in speaking in tongues. And please note and remember, when you're dealing with the charismatic, that speaking in tongues is the lowliest gift God ever gave the church. That if you can simply help, It's a greater gift than speaking in tongues because helps is listed above it. It listed the gifts, and the apostle said in verse 31, covet earnestly the best gifts. I want each of you saints at Corinth to desire the highest gift that God might give you. If if you only have spoken in tongues, then desire more because it's the bottom. Desire the best gifts. And so he gets everyone's attention to look up that list of gifts and desire a better one. And Corinth didn't need a whole lot of encouragement in wanting better gifts because they were all envious of each other for the gifts they already had. But he propels them to want to think of serving Christ better with a better gift because he says, with the best gifts. That means there are better and worse gifts and there are best gifts. And he says, earnestly covet those best gifts. Then he says, Yet, in spite of those best gifts, I show unto you a more excellent way. 
This is the most phenomenal transitional verse and introduction to the concept of charity. That verse, closing out chapter 12, says this to us. Loving one another is a greater and more superior way, a more excellent way of serving the Lord Jesus Christ than even being an apostle. This is not the love of God described in chapter 13. This is the love of your neighbor. This is the love of your brother. This is the love of your spouse. This is the love of your children. This is love from one man to another. It's carefully defined for us. And when we love one another, which is the greatest grace and the greatest evidence that there is a change in our hearts, it is a more superior way of serving Jesus Christ than being an apostle and a miracle worker and speaking in tongues and interpreting tongues and being a prophet and having the word of wisdom or the word of knowledge. That's how he introduces the chapter. What an introduction in that last clause of verse 31 of chapter 12. And so now we enter into the chapter. Let me show you how simple this chapter is. The first three verses point out by comparing an exaggerated gift that love is still better. He picks a few gifts, exaggerates them as high as he can get them, with hyperboles, love is still better. That's verses 1 through 3. Verses 4 through 7 is the definition of love in one sentence. That one sentence in verses 4 through 7 is some of the most precious language on earth. That one sentence, if it was practiced by men and women, all war, all conflict would utterly disappear. Every marriage would be just fine if that one sentence was practiced. If you were to practice that sentence towards your spouse, you would have a perfect marriage regardless of what they do towards you because that has nothing to do with it. Did you know there's not a thing in there in verses 4 through 7 about what someone is supposed to do to you? Verses 4 through 7 is what you're supposed to do to someone else. Now we just sang, and then verses 8 through 13 tell us that love is going to last forever, but these spiritual gifts that the Corinthians were so excited about were just about over with. Now, brethren, we have sang this morning, and we have talked about the fact that this day is a day that God has given to us, and we do not know if we have tomorrow. Therefore, as we go into this chapter, are you willing to submit yourself to the law of God that is perfect and able to convert your soul and practice this kind of treatment toward your neighbor, your brother, this church, your spouse, your children, your parents. Are you willing? You want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that he remembers? He's going to remember acts like giving a drink of water, visiting someone in prison, clothing someone when they were naked. And he's going to say, because you did it to the least of one of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And it's all described right here. This church was all puffed up about being able to speak in tongues, about being able to give a prophecy, about having a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. The Apostle Paul is going to take them down and show them that the greater way of serving Jesus Christ is by loving one another. And it is far superior. I hope you can follow along with me now as we go into this first section. The first three verses are going to create exaggerated gifts and show that love is still better, even than an exaggerated gift. Remember the word hyperbole. Hyperbole is a figure of speech 
in a language whereby you make an exaggeration, but the exaggeration is so extreme and so obvious, everyone knows it's an exaggeration. We'll see some of those. Here we go. Verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Charity is the word used throughout this chapter. Charity is love. Charity and love are used as synonyms in the Bible. Charity and love are used as synonyms in a dictionary. Sometimes we put a little different slant on charity in that it is something we do for the poor. But in this particular passage, it's love. Love is the greatest grace and gift in the New Testament and the highest measure of a Christian's life. If you love the brethren, then it's evidence that you have eternal life. And the word love is used in most other places. It's a synonym, and it shouldn't throw us off at all. It's not going to be talking about giving to UNICEF in 1 Corinthians 13. It's going to be talking about loving the brethren, and it's going to show us that. So that's the word charity. Now, since the Corinthians had such an infatuation with speaking in tongues, Paul starts off immediately with the lowest gift, which they should have recognized as being rather low, and he addresses it this way. Though I speak with the tongues. And what does that word mean? Languages. Though I speak with the languages of men and of angels. The apostle is saying, let's take a hypothetical case that I'm not even speaking Russian. I'm not speaking English. I'm speaking in the language that the angels use to communicate with each other. This is a hyperbole. We don't know what the angels speak. We're not told about their language anywhere in the Word of God. This is a hyperbole. The apostle is taking tongues and getting it up just as high as he can. Though I speak with the tongues, plural, I've got quite a gift. I can speak in the languages of men and angels, but if I don't know how to love my brother, the noise that I am making is the irritating noise of a military bugle or a clanging, tinkling cymbal. They're irritating, vain, profitless noises. If I don't know how to love. It's it's an incredible statement. It takes tongues and just crushes the gift below the grace of loving your brothers. And because of verses 4 through 7, we know exactly what kind of love this chapter is talking about. It's how we relate to one another. This makes our religion so simple. And yet, without the grace of God, so difficult. Because loving other sinners, when you're a sinner, is very difficult. Apart from the grace of God. Remember the Apostle Paul in Titus chapter 3 said that we were, and he included himself, once filled with malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's what he was by nature, and that's what we are by nature, And if you think you're not that, you're wrong. You totally misjudge your heart. You say, well, I know someone, they're so nice. They're so nice, they've never hated anybody. That niceness is hatred. Let me prove it to you. That niceness will compromise anything. That niceness will overlook any sins. That niceness will not bring judgment on a person. That niceness will not rebuke. In God's definition of the word niceness and love, that person is a hateful person because they don't exercise the judgment of God on sinful, rebellion, 
and foolishness. Everybody's hateful. I don't care if they look nice or if they're harsh. In either case, we're all hateful by nature because we're selfish. We want to do things our way. We don't like other people telling us that they have a different preference. We want to do it our way. We don't want to give. We want to receive. That's one of the most sickening things about marriage or church members. It's people always worrying about what the other party should be doing toward them. That That is an irrelevant event. That is a fact that is totally counterproductive and worthless. To be worried about what other people are doing to you, true love is, what can I do for them? A true church member is, what can I do for my church? You know, let us not ask what our church can do for us, but what we can do for our church. I corrupted a man's words, but I hope you understand that. This is what we ought to be looking at these as, what can I do towards someone else? How can I love them? Because by nature, we're quite hateful. The apostle said to the Corinthians, even though I had a gift of tongues that was so great, I could speak in the languages of men and angels, if I do not know how to be selfless, how to be long-suffering, how to be kind to other people, it's nothing but an irritating noise. And so he lifts love up, and he puts the spiritual gift of tongues down, and he started out with the one they were the most infatuated with. So we go to the next verse. And though I have the gift of prophecy, remember the gift of prophecy? They didn't have the written word of God, so one man would stand up and begin to speak and reveal the will of God. He would last a few minutes and run out. Someone else would have to stand up. But notice how Paul describes this hypothetical gift of prophecy. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries, not just a couple, not just one once in a while, but I understand all mysteries and all knowledge. I don't just have a word of knowledge, which we saw in chapter 12. That means getting some knowledge for four minutes while you're standing in front of the church and explaining something, and then you've got to sit down because you can't think of another word to say. I have all knowledge, the apostle is saying, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, which is a hyperbole of the gift of faith because it was never intended to move mountains in that sense of the word, yet if I have this this fabulous gift, I am a prophet that understands all mysteries, I have all knowledge, and I have faith so much that I can move mountains. If I don't have charity, I am nothing. I'm not a great prophet. I'm not a great man with lots of understanding and knowledge. I am nothing. I am nothing. So he elevates love again and presses down prophecy, faith, the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge. He presses down all those revelatory gifts and lifts up love because love is better than all those things. You Corinthians, Paul is saying, instead of getting so focused on these spiritual gifts, learn to love each other. And this morning I say to you, If you want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and give the single greatest evidence that you are born again and that you will stand accepted before him someday, then you will love all your brethren this way, as we're going to define it in just a few minutes. That is the greatest measure of the child of God. It is mentioned far more many times than faith. Because I want to tell you something. The devils believe and tremble, so faith is always suspect. But love is not. 
You cannot fake true love. Wait till we get to the definition. Nobody has faked their way through life, treating one another the way verses 4 through 7 describe. Many have said, I believe, and didn't, as we read about in the Gospel of John over and over. But they didn't love. While they're saying they believe, they want to stone Jesus Christ. That's not love. I hope you're with me on the importance of love. In verse, I hope verse 2 humbles all of us. What if God continues to show us things from his word, we continue to study it, he grants us life and health, and we continue as a congregation, and we're just filled with doctrinal knowledge. We're just filled with understanding mysteries. We just have a great handle on a whole lot of things. And we don't have charity. What are we? Nothing. Nothing. What is our church? Nothing. Doctrine is not the goal of our church only. And it's not even the first goal. The first goal is that we would show the love of God that has been shown toward us, toward one another. That's our first goal. And that we're told right here that's the more important thing. You know, there's been a time in our past where if we could have had all doctrine and known all mysteries and could have had all faith, we would have esteemed that more important. But it's not the way that the Bible lays it out. This is more important to learn to love one another. And so he puts these, he puts love up and he puts these gifts down in verse 2. We come to verse 3. This is an amazing verse. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Now, brethren, when Zacchaeus came down out of the sycamore tree, what did he say he was going to do with all of his, with his goods? He was going to give half of them to the poor. And when he said he was going to give half to the poor, Jesus said, today is salvation come to this house. Now, when you give half of your goods to the poor, you would think that that's something that's going to be very valuable when you get to meet the Lord. Wouldn't you? Then you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, or you read about James being killed by Herod in Acts chapter 12. You read some of those events of martyrs, and you'd think, Boy, when a martyr meets the Lord, the Lord's got to just say to him, you gave me, you paid the ultimate price. You gave me the big gift. Welcome into heaven. And that's how we think. But look at what the verse says. Instead of being a tightwad like Zacchaeus, and he wasn't, we give everything we own. This is hyperbole. This is an exaggerated case of outward charity. We give all this money. Do you know what? This action right here is very simple. Here's how it works. You lift the jacket, you pull out the wallet, you open it, you pop out a 20, and you go give it to someone. Do you know what that took? Nothing but pride. Isn't that neat? All you children understand that? That takes nothing. Now, how about walking up to someone and that someone says something to you that offends you. And you just overlook it completely and love them back instead. Let me tell you, you're digging a whole lot deeper than this pocket right here. And brethren, do you hear me? Mm-hmm. Are you listening to me right now? It is the total difference, and God measures us all. This doesn't mean anything to him. As the verse is teaching us, even if we were to give everything we had and end up in poverty, if we don't have that affectionate, sacrificial love for one another... What about being a martyr? 
What if I give my body to be burned? No, I will not deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Go ahead and burn me if you want to. I will not bow down and kiss your statue of Mary. No, I will not accept your doctrine of transubstantiation. No, I will not. Burn me. But yet you've lived your life unable to forgive others, unable to love them when they don't treat you just the way your royal highness expects to be treated. Do you know what? When you get to heaven, it's meaningless. Look at what it says. It profiteth me nothing. It profiteth me nothing. So what if you give yourself to be burned if you haven't allowed yourself to be burned many times by people offending you? The Bible does use the word that way. Paul said over there in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that he was burned often. Do not I burn, he said, because he was often offended. And don't we burn sometimes? You know, when someone offends us, does a little fire take up inside? Is your pilot light usually working? And when somebody offends you, the flame gets a little larger? But that's the, that's the one we want to quench. Give me the bucket of water to put that one out. That's what's meaningful to the Lord. Do you know we don't have to wait for the communists to take over America and sacrifice us at the stake? We don't have to wait for the Muslims to take over America and sacrifice us at the stake? Today, you have an opportunity to please the Lord Jesus Christ, show your Christianity, prove your regeneration and eternal life by loving one another. And it's not reaching in here. It's truly getting down and exalting others and and thinking on their things and making them more important than ourselves. It's the Word of God. Here we are. The Apostle Paul has just taken them. I want to show you, you Corinthians are so hung up on these gifts, you won't let each other speak. You come to the Lord's Supper and you gorge before you'll even let the poor people get there and have anything. I want to show you what it means to serve Christ. Get love up there where it belongs and get all these gifts down. I don't care if you can speak in the tongues of angels. I don't care if you understand all mysteries. You give every sense you've got to take care of the poor and you end up being a martyr if you haven't known how to relate to one if you haven't known how to relate to one another and actually done it. You are nothing. It's a bunch of vain noise and it profits you nothing. That's the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13. The whole measure of our lives ought to be our service to others. What do we do for others? Every bit of selfishness that you still have in you means you do not know love yet. Every time you think about what others ought to be doing to you instead of what you should be doing to them, you flunk this chapter. It's something we all have to measure ourselves by. We don't have these spiritual gifts. So we have to apply this to us in the year 2004. There's the first three verses. Hyperbolic, exaggerated statements of spiritual gifts. And even though they're exaggerated, they're still inferior to the more excellent way. And the more excellent way? Loving one another. The devils can't do it, but we can by the grace of Christ. The world can't do it, but we can by the grace of Christ. The world, when they do something for someone else, They've got another motive in mind. But if we do it because each of us in this church was blood-bought with the Lord Jesus Christ, that's a very different motive. We're doing it because our Lord told us to, and because he loved them, we should love them. Let's go to verse 4. One sentence, I'm going to read it from 4 through 7. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. 
Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. One sentence defining love. This, that, is one, that is the most valuable single sentence on relationships that's ever been written. I can't think of a better sentence in the whole Bible than that in its profound wisdom because love is the greatest grace. And where do we get a one-sentence definition of love that can even come close to that? The world knows nothing of this. Love to the world is lust. Love to the world is what I can get. And whenever you start thinking about what somebody owes me, you don't know anything about love. You're a hateful, selfish person because love is giving. Love is giving. There's far more pleasure in giving than there is in getting. Getting is rather boring. Give. Don't think about what you're going to get, but give. Our Lord gave to us. And do you know there's a reason why he gave to us? Because he was going to demonstrate the magnificent attributes of love to the entire universe, and it's based on giving. What did he get from coming to this world? He gave. Now his great giving is going to be exalted through all eternity as we praise him. This is very important for all of us to learn that this is love right here. You know, who needs a marriage manual when you've got 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7? Who needs to tell a church how they ought to relate to one another heart almost, when you've got this sentence. Who needs to tell children how they ought to relate to each other when you've got 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7? This tells you, Anna, how you can relate to Austin and Alex and Andrea right here in this one sentence. Here is wisdom about love. Let's look at it. We've been over this before. We should probably teach it once a year. You should be looking at it every now and then because this is true love right. right here. Everybody wants true love. Oh, they want to be true. They want to find true love. Well, it's so easy. It's right here on the page. And if you'll just take this and start doing it. See, everybody wants to get it. But just take it and start doing it. Do you know what? You don't have to wait for anything. Just start doing it. Charity suffereth long. Love is willing to put up with other people offending it. Other people not measuring up. Other people not treating them Treating you the way you want to be treated. Love suffers long. Do you know that suffering involves a little bit of pain? Do you know long doesn't mean for five minutes or one year? Did you know your whole life is short? If you love someone, you will put up with them irritating and offending and disappointing you for a long time. And that's all, that's all I'm going to say. We've got to keep moving. You have been over this before. You know this. There's an extensive outline that goes over each one of these 15 phrases. These 15 phrases describe how we should treat one another. The first one says you're going to put up for a long time with other people offending you. And is kind. Love is kind. Love is thinking of good things that it can do for someone else. Love is benevolent. Love is merciful. Love wants to make another person happy by being kind toward them. Love does not expect to be made happy by someone else. Love wants to make someone else happy. Love is kind. 
Charity envieth not. Love never resents or gets jealous about the advantage that someone else has. It is always happy. If you really love someone, when something good happens to them, something better than has happened to you, you're not going to resent it. If you really love them, you're going to be excited because you love them. You're glad they got the better thing and you got the worse thing. If you really love them and there was a choice, you'd give them the better and you'd take the worse because that's what love is. It never envies the advantage of someone else. It's glad that God blessed them more than he blessed you because after all, you love them, so they're more important than you. It all fits, doesn't it? That's a different attitude than the world has. There's no envy. There's no jealousy. It doesn't resent the advantage of another. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. Love never goes around putting itself forward, vaunting itself, making itself important, putting itself up. Love wants to just kind of withdraw in a group of people and be there, contribute when it can, but it doesn't always want to be the center of attention. Love would rather be out of the center of attention and make the other person the center of attention because it doesn't want to vaunt itself. You know, it's the one that wants to throw the birthday parties rather than receive one. Someone that loves doesn't want to have a birthday party because they don't want anyone else to go to the pain and trouble that it is to give you a birthday party. They want to give it for others. That's what love is. It's never pushing itself forward. It never wants to volunteer unless there's a need for a volunteer and it can do the job appropriately and then it volunteers in a meek way or in a quiet way. It's never getting itself forward by arranging circumstances, so it's the center of attention. Does charity vaunteth not itself? Is not puffed up. Now, vaunting yourself is when you actually take measures to make yourself important and popular and in front of other people. Puffed up is when you've decided that's a little too ugly. I'll just think it inside. Puffed up is having a high opinion of yourself on the inside. Vaunting yourself is actually pushing yourself on us. Being puffed up is thinking highly of yourself. You're all inflated inside with too high of an estimate of yourself. And it causes great trouble. As soon as a wife thinks she's something, then her husband can never measure up because he doesn't treat her as much as her puffed up, bloated attitude and idea of herself is. Very simple. And it's the way we can't be puffed up. The Bible tells us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. But we ought to think about others and to put ourselves down. It's not puffed up. Oh, these Corinthians. Just think if they'd have practiced the first verse. All their striving and fighting over spiritual gifts would be long over. Right. It's, it's solved this simple with one sentence. But he works it in here in the middle of his three chapters about spiritual gifts. Charity doth not behave itself unseemly. Love is always looking to behave itself in a conventional, acceptable, decorous, courteous, right way. See, we, we, do you know how limited we are in knowledge? We come into this world born to two parents. Now, those two parents were ignorant, and we're ignorant. We come in with a blank slate, a depraved heart, and we learn a few things. You know, we, we think that we have figured out how meals ought to be put on the table, what kind of food ought to be eaten, what ought to be done in the time after dinner. All these different habits that we get into are our own 
from the little deck of circumstances that's been dealt to us, the little hand, with our parents and so forth. And so we think this is the right way to do things. And we want to push that on other people. No, this is the way it ought to be done. That's where we ought to go. It never behaves itself unseemly. That is unseemly conduct. That is pushing your preferences on someone else, and that is out of, that's out of the question for love. Love doesn't want to behave itself in an obnoxious or irritating or selfish way. It wants to behave itself in a seemly way, a good way, a positive, acceptable way that's agreeable to other people. That's love. Every minute of every day, you are making choices that other people see and that affect other people, and either you're doing it out of your little list of how things ought to be done that you obtained in total ignorance, or you do it God's way in looking for them. What does that person like? How does that person like it? How does that person like to be treated? Now, I usually like to do it this way, but since I know that they don't like it that way, I'm going to do it their way. Some of you love attention. If you're sick, you would prefer that the church would line up at your door and take 10-minute intervals, come in, drop to their knees, express their deep pity for your horrible situation in bed, hand you a card, tie a balloon to your bedstead, and give you a chocolate bunny. And then as soon as that person left, another one would come in, and you would just be glowing with the attention you were getting. Now, others in here, when they're sick, they don't want anyone to know about it at all. They just want to hide in their little cocoon called a bed and get over it. So, when that happens, and I am not wasting my time, am I, brethren? I hope that you all know this. I'm not wasting my time. When, when this happens and a person gets sick, you need to ask yourself, do they want me to arrive with a band or not? Or do they want me to leave them alone and send them an email so that when they're healthy enough, they can get up and look at the email and know that I was thinking about them? Now, see, that's love. To go press on somebody, well, listen, I want to let them know that I care about them. Get out of bed. I'm here to see you. Aren't you excited? Don't, don't, don't laugh like it never happens. You ought to be, because, because you like all that attention, you, that doesn't mean you do it to others. You, somebody's going to say to me, but doesn't the Bible say do unto others as you would have them do unto you? That doesn't mean in specific details. Right. That means show them the kind and consideration that you want people to show you the kind consideration. It's amazing how people don't get that. You know, I, 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 mentioned, I mentioned some time back that we had a sister in this church. We have a couple sisters in this church. But if you're going to help them, you need to keep in mind that they are running on a very, very tight schedule. They do not have minutes to waste chit-chatting with you who are trying to show them your deep affection. If you want to show them your deep affection, then think about the fact that they're doing three times as much as you are, and they have a limited amount of time, and they need to get their little bundles of pleasure in bed at a certain time. Therefore, if I'm going to help them, I need to do things in a different way than I like to do them, because I like to take an hour and a half to eat, two hours to sit around afterwards, an hour for dessert, and send people home at 1130. But that's not going to help a little woman that needs to get home and have her kids in bed at 8 o'clock, do a load of laundry, and try to recover before tomorrow morning when she has to get up at 6 to start the routine all over again. 
Now, that's just an example. No one needs to be thinking too particularly, but everyone needs to be thinking, do I always think about the other person? Because it says, does not behave itself unseemly in an inappropriate, irritating, offensive, unconventional way. You know, there is a place for convention. Independent thinkers say, well, I just hate convention. Well, that's why you're an obnoxious pig. Whenever you hear somebody say, oh, I just reject convention. Do you know what they're saying about themselves? I am the most incredibly selfish person that you will ever meet in life. And I do not love anyone except myself. Convention is how ordinary people like things done to them. And do you know what? The more you can learn convention, the more you can love other people. We've got to keep going. Seeketh not her own. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Love is not selfish. Love is not asking what I can get. Love is asking what I can do. Love does not seek her own. Love is not selfish. Love is not easily provoked. That sounds like the first one. The first one was charity suffereth long. Now we're reading is not easily provoked. When someone offends you, they forget to invite you to an event. They forget to invite you. They forget to put your name on the prayer requests for the men's meeting. Did you know that I forgot my nephew? My nephew. We had a men's meeting on Wednesday evening, and we had a prepared list of of all the names of all the men. And I left off my nephew's name. My loving son told me about it when I got home. But he, know, he knows that I'd want to know, though, because he, he'd know that if I found out later some other way, it hurt me more. It says here, is not easily provoked. Do you know what I'm thankful for? My nephew's told me to forget about it several times. Now, I won't forget about it for a while because things like that irritate me. But he wasn't easily provoked, and I thank him. You know, little Austin down here, I still owe him something because I basically implied at a family night supper that the little guy had cheated on figuring out the age of Joshua. But you know what? He doesn't care. He let me off the hook. He could have pinned me to the wall, but he didn't. He wasn't easily provoked. Do you know how many opportunities we get for this a day? What do you you want to say, five, 500? 500? Not to be easily provoked. We as Christians ought to be the least provoked of all the people in this city. When we sit at the drive-thru window and it says fast food restaurant over the dri- on the drive-thru awning and it doesn't arrive in 15 seconds and, and you're laughing I, and you all know me, I'm as tempted in this problem as you are or more. Are we not easily provoked? When the Bible says to love our neighbor, what does that mean when you're at the drive through window. You're patient. You're not easily provoked. You know, after one minute, my flesh wants to crawl through that little hole and get their attention that I'm in the car waiting in the drive through But that's my flesh. Our spirit should just patiently wait. I hope you have a long-running cassette or something to put in because most places don't give fast service today. But all these examples, not easily provoked. Someone may say something to you after the service today that you thought was a little harsh, a little crude, a little unkind, a little insensitive, but if you're practicing love, you'll blow it off and say, all right, I have an opportunity. This is what the pastor was talking about. I'm going to ignore it and love them anyway. I, think he, I even think better of them now than I used to. We're going to get to that in a minute. 
That's, that's love. Is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Thinketh no evil is when you see someone do something, you always put the best construction on it. Hmm. Someone's not where they were supposed to be. You know, they promised me that they'd be here at 5 o'clock because we were going to go have supper together, and they're not here. Oh, they're just tardy all the time. Lazy, probably taking a nap and can't wake up. What a bum. I wonder if they've ever read Proverbs 6 about when are you going to wake up from your sleep, sluggard, and you're thinking all these thoughts. But you know what love says? Oh, I wonder what's happened to them. They might have had an accident. I hope everything's okay. I hope they're all right. It doesn't think evil. It thinks the best. It thinks the best. Do you know what we do all the time? Because we're little gods walking around, every time somebody else does something, we put a bad construction on it to make them look bad and us look good. That's, that's our whole life in the flesh. Put somebody else down, put us up, by putting a bad construction on what they did. And do you know what love does? Thinketh no evil. It doesn't put bad constructions on what anybody does. It puts the best construction until the person proves that they were bad. It doesn't think evil. In the Bible, this is called evil surmising. When you are speculating that what a person is up to is something bad. Instead, you should speculate that they're doing something really noble and good. And if we were all thinking that about each other, we would all just elevate right into sainthood, wouldn't we? If we all were thinking that about each other. Thinketh no evil. Oh, when you meet these critical negative people, everybody's actions are always, always construed as being wrong. They're wicked people. That is a wicked person that loves himself only and doesn't love anyone else. If you love others, you'll always want to put their actions in a good light because you love them. So you're going to show mercy toward them. And even though it looks bad, you're not going to think anything bad. There's more on this one. You know that. This is a big part of love, is always putting the right construction on other people's actions. It says in verse 6, Rejoiceth not in iniquity. If you love someone and they fall into sin, there's not even a little tiny smile in your heart that they did something bad and got caught. And you know, there's that wickedness in all of us. Oh, look at them. They can't do this. They can't even live righteously in this area of their life. And so we get this little tiny glow of pleasure when someone does something wrong. That is horrible. It rejoiceth not in iniquity. When you love someone, you are never, never happy or excited that they did something wrong or that they got caught doing something wrong. The next phrase is what's true of us. True love rejoices in the truth. It's glad when its object is doing what is right and is in the truth. You know, but we don't like someone that might be in the truth a little bit more than us, do we? Because if someone is doing the truth and is living righteously a little bit better than us, it kind of puts us down and it puts them up. We don't like that. That's wrong. We should rejoice when they're doing the truth. And when they're in the truth, we should never be glad when they've done something wrong, even though it might make us look better by making that comparison. We shouldn't do that. Verse 7, beareth all things. No matter what other people do to you, no matter how often they do it, you put that burden on your back and you carry it. Love bears all things. Love puts a burden on its back and love carries it. Love does not try to shuck the burden. Love does not try to take the burden and put it on their back by constantly berating them for not measuring up to your expectations. Love just puts the burden on and lives with it. 
Love bears all things. Love believes all things. This goes back to thinketh no evil. No matter what you see a person do or what they do towards you, you believe the best. This is such a wonderful way to live. You believe the best. You know, nature tells us to believe, think the worst about someone else when they do something questionable. But the Bible tells us, believe the best. It believeth all things. No matter what another person does, it believes that that person had a good reason, a good motive, and a good heart in what they did. It believes all things. And I love the Word of God. You know I love it when it comes to the next phrase. If you can't believe it, then hope it. If you can't believe that someone's got a good motive and is noble and has a good heart about something they're doing to you, then you hope it. I love the Word of God. That is just invincible. There'd be somebody that would say, well, I just can't believe it. Well, then hope it. This is the Word of God. One sentence. It tears down every false idea of love and how to relate between people. Believe the best about everyone. And if they're doing things that are just so twisted, convoluted, and apparently hurtful to you, hope it. Hope all things. Hope that what they were doing was noble and had a good motive. And they just missed something. Just hope it. Endureth all things. Endureth is a measure of time. Beareth is getting the burden on your back and carrying it. Enduring is not getting tired out. True love lasts. It doesn't quit. It's not a short timer. It's a long timer. It doesn't quit. It doesn't say, well, I've, I've put up with this for five years. I'm not going to put up with it any longer. Love endures all things. It keeps on going even when it's been painful and you're suffering. Remember, these all tie together. Charity suffereth long. And so charity endureth all things. It keeps on going. This is true love. This is true love in one sentence, verses 4 through 7. Let's come to the third section. Charity never faileth. The last section is, love is superior to spiritual gifts by its duration. Because love will never fail. What that means, that that doesn't teach you that love always works. That if you love someone in verses 4 through 7, you'll get what you want. That is, that is so sick. That is so sick. Because love is never doing verses 4 through 7 to get anything. Love is doing verses 4 through 7 to give. It seeketh not her own. And that's not what the words mean. The word faileth in here, which is used relative to prophecies in the next clause, means come to an end. Love never comes to an end. So I have Paul is telling the Corinthians, I have shown you that the nature of love is better than a spiritual gift. The definition of love is better than a spiritual gift. And the duration of love, because love is going to be with us forever, is better than a spiritual gift because the spiritual gifts are all short time and temporary, not permanent like love. Charity never faileth. Charity never ends when we won't be needing charity to serve one another. That's what it means. It's strange language. We would say charity never ends. But this is the word God gave us because he's going to use it again in just the next clause. Charity never faileth. It never quits or ends. But in, in contrast, this is a contrast. You know, it's been a contrast all the way through. Love is better than spiritual gifts. Love never ends. Love never fails. Love is always the way by which we ought to treat others. But now I'm going to list some things Paul says that will end. 
But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Now, when he says prophecies shall fail, please, that does not mean that a prophet of God is going to foretell something and then it doesn't come to pass. Because a prophet of God, when he foretells something, it always comes to pass. That's why he's a prophet of God. This is the gift of prophecy. Whether, but whether there be prophecies, this is whether there be the gift of prophecy, and whether there be prophecies made by that gift, which you Corinthians are enjoying right now. Chapter 14, remember? Let the prophet speak two or three, and let the other judge. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. That's the gift of prophecy. That's going to fail. That gift of prophecy is going to end, and the Corinthian church would not have it any longer. But, whether there be tongues, they shall cease. The gift of tongues shall cease. In Pentecostal language, we are called cessationists. Because we believe that the spiritual gifts ended. There was cessation of the spiritual gifts. Because it says right here, the the gift of tongues will cease. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Tongues are not like love. All he's doing right here, he's really not even trying to help us that much, but he does indirectly about the timing of spiritual gifts. He's really trying to show the Corinthians love is better than spiritual gifts because love lasts and they don't. So let's stick with the thing that lasts. Let's stick with the thing that will never be old. It will never grow out old-fashioned or out out of date. Let's, Let's stick with love. Tongues shall cease. And you want to remember this verse when you're dealing with those that still think there's a gift of tongues around. Tongues shall cease. Whether there be knowledge... Well, now, wait. Let's go back to tongues for just a second. You know what that is. That is the, the, gift, of langu- the gift of foreign languages you've never studied. It can't mean languages because we're still... We're always going to need some language to communicate in. This is the gift of supernatural ability to speak foreign languages without studying. Then we come to the, to the knowledge. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Is there coming a time, either in this world or out of this world, when we're not going to know anything? Because it says knowledge shall vanish away. No, this is the gift of knowledge. This is the word of knowledge, remember? You have the word of knowledge. A short word comes to you from God the Holy Spirit that gives you knowledge of maybe an Old Testament passage or something that's going to come to pass in the future. An actual prophecy. It's the word of knowledge. It is going to vanish away. The spiritual gifts that I have described to you in chapter 12, Paul is saying, they are going to go away. I've picked three that are representative of all of them. Tongues, the bottom. Prophecy, at the, near the top. And the word of wisdom and knowledge. They're going away. They're not like love. They are temporary. Love is permanent. Four. Four. Starts out verse 9. Four. These are going to go away because they're so inadequate. Four. We know in part and we prophesy in part. Four. The explanation of verse 8. These gifts are all going to cease and vanish away and fail because they're so imperfect impartial, I mean partial, and inadequate. They're, in, they're insufficient for the church of Jesus Christ. They're not enough. Think about it. Why is he writing the epistle? Why is Paul writing this epistle? 
This church had more spiritual gifts than any church in the New Testament. Why are they getting an epistle? They needed more knowledge. Their knowledge was so limited. Their wisdom and understanding of things was so limited. Paul had to write and give them this because this is going to be part of the completed package of the New Testament. They needed this. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. That we know in part is the, is the partial gift of knowledge, the word of knowledge. A man might only have one once a month. He's sitting in an assembly in Corinth. A question comes up about something that needs to be known, and he gets a word of knowledge, a word of it, not the body of it, not the treasury of it, but a word of it. And he's able to get up, and he might be able to run for a minute, four minutes, and then he's done. And he may not get another one until next month. But he had the word of knowledge. There was a question, and he gave a perfect, inspired answer for it. But then he's just as dead as everyone else on any other subject. We know in part, and we prophesy in part. The little bit of revelation that a prophet can give, and I just read the verses to you, one prophet could be speaking, and if something be revealed to another prophet, he's to raise his hand, first one sits down, second one takes up, and the second one runs out. We prophesy in part. We only have a little bit of the knowledge and revelation of God's will that he intended for us. Therefore, these gifts are all going away because they're all imperfect and partial, inadequate for the church of Jesus Christ. We're down through verse 9. But, in contrast to this partial gift of knowledge, this partial gift of prophecy, but... When that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. We have two demonstrative pronouns in that verse. That, referring to knowledge and prophecy. That these spiritual gifts that contain knowledge and prophecy. They're going to pass away, the ones that are partial, the ones that are incomplete, the ones that are imperfect. Because a perfect gift of knowledge and prophecy is on its way. Amen. When that... Now, there isn't a male pronoun in this whole chapter except for Paul talking about himself. When that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Well, what is that that is in part? Knowledge, prophecy, the revelation of God's will. Okay, well, then if that's going away and if that is referring to the same thing, which it obviously is in verse 10, then that must be a perfect revelation of God's will that is coming to replace this very partial revelation of God's will that we have by the gifts of prophecy and the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge. Are you all with me? Listen, brethren, I am teaching you something right now. All you young men, when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. That which is in part has been told us in verse 9. It is the revelation of God's will by the gift of knowledge and the gift of prophecy. That partial gift is going away because he has a perfect word of prophecy coming. And what is that perfect word of prophecy? Our Bible. Our Bible. Bible. It's our Bible. These poor Christians didn't have anything except these little partial gifts of men popping up. But there was a complete, perfect, sufficient revelation coming that would replace... They're imperfect, they're, they're imperfect and partial gifts. What does the Bible say about itself? When Paul wrote Timothy, he said, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Please follow the words. Right. That the man of God may be perfect. 
perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Brethren, the Bible of the New Testament, the canon of 27 books, replaced all these partial, imperfect, inadequate gifts of the Holy Spirit of God. They only had a little bit of knowledge. That's why they're getting epistles. If they had very much knowledge, they wouldn't have needed 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Paul had to write because it is this inspired scripture that is perfect. It's able to make the man of God completely perfect unto all good works. I've had to debate that point so many times in the last two months with Catholics who wrote in because they want to attack us that don't you know that we gave you your Bible and that we're the ones that interpret it? Listen, a minister with the Holy Scriptures of the New Testament has everything he needs to be a perfect minister. Amen. Tongues are going to cease. Prophecies will fail. Knowledge will vanish away in the sense that those spiritual gifts, all the spiritual gifts, are going to disappear. And I taught you that last Sunday night. Was the Apostle Paul still healing as hot and heavy at the end of his ministry as he was at the front end? No. No. He was leaving ministers sick in various places when he should have healed them so that they could have got about their ministries. But he couldn't heal them. So he's recommending things like, Timothy, why don't you drink a little wine for your stomach's sake and your oft infirmities since I can't do anything more for you anymore. He writes three pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Is there even one phrase in there about how they're to use spiritual gifts? No. Not a bit. Not one thing. Because they're gone. They were already being phased out. Because that which is perfect was on its way and coming to a rapid conclusion. Do you know when the Catholics say we got our canon and most Catholic worshiping Baptists? At the Council of Carthage in 397. 397, they say we got our 27 books. Do you know what? Peter figured he already had them. Right. Peter, look at, look at 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. What did Paul tell Timothy? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is able to make you a perfect minister. Now, do you think that was the book of Leviticus? How was the book of Leviticus going to help Timothy as a minister? What did Jude mean when he wrote and said, Brethren, it was needful for me to write to you that we ought to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. I wonder if he was talking about Carthage in the future. Or had the faith already been delivered to the saints? Amen. Look at the Apostle Peter, verse 15, 2 Peter 3.15, an account, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. Now, when did Paul write to, he, when did Paul write to Jews? The book of Hebrews. As also in, what does it say? As also in... All his epistles. Do you mean Peter knew about the epistles of Paul before 70 A.D.? Before Carthage in 397? Did Peter know about Paul's epistles? As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures under their own destruction. Do you know what Peter tells us here? All of Paul's epistles are Scripture that have been collected into Scripture. The epistle to the Laodiceans just flat out floated away. It wasn't even questionable. The epistle to the Colossians stayed, 
even though it mentioned the epistle to the Laodiceans. The apostles confirmed each other's writings. The entire New Testament is either written by an apostle or someone in close companionship with an apostle. Look at 1 Timothy 5. 1 Timothy 5, don't let those jokers tell you that they didn't know the 27 books until 397 A.D. at the Council of Carthage. The apostles knew them. Paul gave them to Timothy and said, use them because they're able to make you perfect. Now, if it was only half the New Testament, how perfect would he be? What was Jude saying that was once delivered to the saints? Was he talking about half of it was delivered and half will be? Trust your Bibles. You say, well, it takes faith because I don't know of a council that determined them. Amen. Don't you love to live by faith? I believe the Bible. And if Peter said all of his epistles are scripture, I believe they had the New Testament by 70 A.D. 1 Timothy 5.17. Let's get 18. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. That's Deuteronomy 25.4. And the laborer is worthy of his reward. What is that? What's Paul quoting there? Because he says in verse 18, it's scripture. For the scripture saith, and then he has an and. So he has two quotes of scripture. Where did that last phrase come from, or that last clause? Luke 10, 7. Paul confirming that Luke's gospel is scripture. Now, your Bibles may put Matthew 10 in there, but if you go compare the two of them, you'll find that it was Luke 10. Did Paul and Luke have anything to do with each other? Did they spend a day or two together once in a while? Traveling companions. The apostles confirmed the word of God. And look, it tells us they had it. How good was it? Is it something that we can call perfect? Well, it was able to make the man of God perfect. James called it the perfect law of liberty. Now, could that be the Old Testament? The perfect law of liberty. No, not a chance. There was no liberty in the Old Testament It's the perfect law of liberty. Look at these men writing about the Bible. Do you know what we agree? We trust the Bible. It says it had the word of God and the scriptures of the New Testament before they closed out their own epistles. Is it perfect? Peter said it was more sure than hearing God's voice from heaven. Now that's better than any gift that was in the church at Corinth. God's voice from heaven in the presence of heavenly and earthly witnesses, Peter said, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Back to 1 Corinthians 13. But when that which is perfect has come, then that. Those two demonstrative pronouns, that, should be circled because they're both talking about the same thing, the the revelation of the will of God, which had been by the imperfect, partial, incomplete gifts of the Spirit, would now be replaced by the perfect, complete, more sure word of prophecy able to furnish the man of God truly unto all good works. Uh, Verse 11. An analogy. Just think about it from a purely human standpoint to get the analogy. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. There is a maturing process in a human life. There was a maturing process in the New Testament church. For 40 years, they had the childish things of spiritual gifts. After those 40 years were over, they had the manly things of the Word of God that are able to make the man of God perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. 
All that is is a little analogy. Just as a man grows up to better things, better thinking, better knowledge, better actions, so the church is growing up, and it's growing out of these childish things, of these little imperfect gifts, into the perfect revelation of the Word of God. Don't ever underestimate the Word of God. The Lord God said about His Word that He has exalted it above all His name. And you know how high the name of God is. Those little gifts that they had were just little childish things in comparison to having the full Word of God. That's all verse 11 means. That's all it means. It is just a simple little analogy as He's explaining to them, your gifts are kind of childish in the overall scheme of the development of the kingdom of heaven because God is about to unleash on it the perfect word of God, which is a manly, complete, mature, adult way of looking at things. Verse 12. For now we see through a glass, darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. He is still talking about partial knowledge, and he is still talking about a date and time. He says, for now, brethren at Corinth, now we are looking through a glass, and it's dark and hazy, and we can't see the details, and we don't see all the features. But then, at a future time, we will see face to face. Now listen, brethren, it does not tell us what we're going to see. It tells us how we're going to see. Everybody, when they see the words face-to-face, thinks that's talking about Jesus. Would you find Jesus in the verse for me? Would you find a male pronoun in the verse for me? It's not telling us what we're going to see. It's telling us how we're going to see. Because right now we're seeing partially. He says, now I know in part, but then shall I know in perfection, even as I am known in perfection. This is the same thing as verse 10. Verse 12 is telling us, that when the Bible comes with its completed revelation of the will of God, we will not be looking at God's will as if we're staring through a glass. Brother, they did not have glass back then like you sell. Their glass was very smoky and very hazy and very difficult to see through. You could not see clearly. Now we see through a glass darkly. Now we're looking at the will of God, the, the revelation of God, in an obscure, hazy way that doesn't show us the details and the features and the breadth and the completion of it. But there's a time coming, saying the same thing as verse 10, when we will see face-to-face. You know, when you're face-to-face with a person, it's very different than looking through a bad piece of glass. You get to see every feature. We will see it this close, as if we were face-to-face. Not talking about a person, talking about our understanding of the will of God. Right now we're incomplete, Corinthians, but it's going to get a whole lot better when that which is perfect has come because right now we're seeing in a very hazy way, but we're going to see very clearly shortly. It's going to be as if we're this close to each other, face to face. Even though we're not seeing each other, we're seeing the will of God. Now I know in part, he's talking about the same thing as verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. The word of God would be perfect truly furnishing unto all good works. If a minister comes short, it's not the Bible's fault. It's the minister's fault. Because the Bible's going to be sufficient to see as clearly as if you were face to face instead of looking through a glass darkly. 
a dark piece of glass does not let you see very much. But there would be a time coming when they would see better. It doesn't say what they're going to be seeing because that's already been taught. That's the will of God. And it's going to be in the word of God of the New Testament. Verse 13, And now abideth faith, hope, charity. These three, but the greatest of these is charity. Brethren at Corinth, the spiritual gifts are all going away, but there are three things that are going to stay around as long as you're here in this world. Faith, hope, and charity. But I'll tell you something. Charity is the greatest of those three. And if you think about it, as soon as we get to heaven, will you have need of faith? No, because faith is the evidence of things not seen. And once we see it, who needs faith? What is hope? Hope that is seen is not hope. According to Romans 8, so there will be no more need for hope. But guess what we're going to be doing for all of eternity? Loving one another and loving the Lord himself. That is 1 Corinthians 13. The first three verses show us that love is superior to even exaggerated spiritual gifts. Verses 4 through 7 has a one sentence of how we ought to treat each other in this church. Verses 8 through 13 tell us that those imperfect, partial, incomplete, and inadequate spiritual gifts were going away. The canon of the New Testament was arriving, it was perfect, and it would satisfy all their needs because it would reveal the complete will of God for us in this period of time. And we would be able to see clearly, and we would grow up into the way a church ought to be. And brethren, I'm thankful that we live on this side of 70 A.D., that we have the perfect Word of God. Love the Word of God. You have something perfect. And I hope that you will look at love and treat one another that way, that we might be pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't, you know, being a pastor isn't the the best way of pleasing Christ. Loving the other members of this church is the way of pleasing Christ. Serving them, as verses 4 through 7 describe. And don't let that charismatic movement fool you. Those gifts have all passed away, and we have a perfect revelation right here. I'll put this up against Benny Hinn and his words of wisdom anytime. When he comes up with nine persons in the Godhead, We've got a problem. But you have all the answers right here in the Holy Scriptures. It's perfect. It's the perfect law of liberty. I hope that you'll read it. You have something very precious given to you. I hope you'll read it every day, believe it, and as we read and sang this morning from Psalm 19, consider it more precious to us than much fine gold and sweeter to our taste than honey and the honeycomb. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.